I also want to personally thank, though she is not here, but she will be listening by tape, my mother, who regularly prays for me, regularly encourages me, for many years has put up with me, but I thank God for her life and her Christian example. So if you have your Bibles open, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 6 today. 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, not trusting in our own righteousness, but trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Father, thank you for your word. We posture our hearts before your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come now by your spirit, walk among us. Walk within these aisles. Take these words and apply them to our hearts. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you are an absolute lover of roller coasters, I wish to applaud you. I am not. I used to be. But somewhere in the time frame of early fatherhood, and perhaps early rationale, I realized that roller coasters were a deafening enemy to my settled stomach and the tasty amusement park food. Not to mention, I didn't have control of the vehicle, and it went fast, and sometimes it even went upside down, so which was more and more my children's delight. And yet, in our marriage, I, the man, the strong and the brave one, was appointed to be the parent that was to accompany the children on the roller coaster. And invariably, as my children and I would approach the coaster, one would cautiously ask, Dad, you're not scared, are you? To which I would clearly but softly declare, of course not. 
To which they would often reply, me too. But don't worry, Dad, I'll be with you. Now, it was not the ride up the hill as you're approaching the first hill that ever bothered me. I was an absolute master of the slow ride up the hill. I could do that. Nor was even the momentary time at the top of the hill a problem. It was all that came after. And to this day, I will not admit whether I opened, I mean, closed my eyes for the rest of the ride. The letter of Ephesians can have two parts. You may say it does have two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 3, the second chapter 4 through 6. We've spent many months looking at excuse me, maybe it was many months, looking at chapters 1 through 3. It can be broken up, as theologians say, the theology in chapters 1 through 3 and the application or living it out in chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3, we looked on the focus of our reconciliation and what was done. And chapters 4 through 6 are going to be the admonitions of our application exhortations, living out this theology that we have studied about. One theologian summarized it this way. Chapters 1 through 3 described the unity with God that the Spirit creates. The unity with God that the Spirit creates. Chapters 4 through 6 describe the unity of the Spirit maintained and displayed. Unity of the Spirit maintained and displayed. Friends, in light of the glorious reconciling work of the Spirit that we have spent three months studying about, God calls believers to maintain the unity created by that Spirit. In light of the glorious truth of the work that the Spirit has done in bringing unity, God calls believers to maintain that unity. Please look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4 and note that the Apostle Paul begins there with the word, I therefore. I therefore. Remember the English grammar adage, Whenever you see the word therefore, you always must ask what it's there for. Well, folks, we are about to launch therefore into a lot of applications, a lot of what it means to maintain this unity. That's going to be the downslope of the roller coaster. But we are threatened if we forget the first three chapters. The first three chapters are the build-up. The first three chapters are the power. The first three chapters are the strength that will keep us through the second half of this book. If we forget the first three chapters, even for a moment, it threatens not only misconception, but it also threatens a lot of discouragement and self-condemnation. What we're going to talk about in chapters 4 through 6 are very, if you will, in your face about the way you should walk as a Christian, 
and we cannot, we dare not remember what we have read in the first three chapters. So, as a review, a quick review, let's take a stroll through some of these verses. Ephesians 1 verse 3. It speaks about the fact that Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God thought about you and me before the foundation of the world and He said, they will be Mine. More than that, verse 4, you will be holy and blameless. We stand before a holy, righteous God, blameless because of the work of the Spirit. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, adopted as sons and daughters. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Friends, if you are a son or daughter, a Christian, you have forgiveness of sins. We stand righteous in Christ. Move over to chapter 2. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We could just stop right there and spend all day. When we were dead, when there was nothing in us to save, when there was nothing in us worth saving, God made us alive. God gave us His new life. He came to us. He spoke to our hearts. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Ephesians 2, chapter 12 Remember, remember, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We stand here this morning near to God, very near. By the way, you will never be more righteous Ever than you are today. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 17. One of my favorite verses in the book of Ephesians. He came and preached peace to you. He came and preached peace to you. If you are a believer here this morning, He came at some time and He spoke to your heart and He said, Live. I give you life. And all of a sudden, you start thinking about God. He came and He preached peace. He came and He said, No longer is my wrath upon you. 
Ephesians 3, 6. It says, you're partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Matthew said earlier that the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. Christ, by His Spirit, dwells in you. That's a gift. And finally, verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and that you may know the love of Christ. That surpasses knowledge. You may know the love of Christ. You may know the love of Christ. I'm convinced that we need all eternity just to begin to get a glimpse of the love of Christ. It's so vast. It's incredible. Well, nestled in the midst of all this are verses 222. And this pertains to what we're talking about. Am I stuck? Thanks, Mel. Technical, I am not. So if you're not there, look over at 222. 2.22. It says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That speaks about what we're doing corporately here. We are being built together by the Spirit. The Spirit is at work. He is doing things. He is building us together as bricks in a building. There is an under-construction sign going on. He is building. He is at work. Sometimes we even understand that. Sometimes we don't. But chapters 1 through 3 are a glorious description of what God has done in terms of making reconciliation created by the Spirit. It's a description of a work of grace of God to reconcile God to man. It's a gift freely given and beloved. It is ours. This unity is ours. It's given to us by the Spirit to treasure, to enjoy, and to maintain. To treasure, to enjoy, and to maintain. But we cannot forget the first three chapters. We're going to have to go back to that time and time and time again and not forget who we are in Christ. So as we move forward today into chapter 4, let's make sure that we keep in our rearview mirror those three chapters. So let's launch now into chapter 4. Read with me verses 1 through 3 again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul speaks directly to his readers about their calling and their walk. He speaks to them about their manner of life. In verse 1, if you can feel his pleading, he says, I urge you, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of this calling that we have just read about. Urge can be translated, I beseech you, I exhort you, I plead with you. Live a life worthy, commensurate with, in line with, demonstrative of, indicative of the calling that you have received. There's implication here from the original language to say, spare no effort. Make every priority for your personal life and especially for your corporate life. Live indicative of this calling. Notice the sense of urgency. Paul spent three chapters building this amazing truth. We're going up the first side of the roller coaster. And now with that force, he's saying, take those truths and let them empower your life. Well, that's going to take time and that's going to take the work of the Spirit. Paul says, live a life in a manner that demonstrates this. What does that mean? What does it mean that we live a life demonstrative of the calling that we have? Well, over the next few weeks, we'll get into some specific examples. Paul will talk about what it means to live a life in ministry, live a life in the church, live a life in the family, live a life of parenting, live a life where we are building unity in all those different contexts. But regardless of the context that we live in, regardless if it's parenting, regardless if it's in the church, regardless if it's in ministry, there are certain characteristics that ought mark everything that we do if we're going to maintain, if we're going to guard, if we're going to preserve unity. Three several things that we're going to have to apply. The first is this, that if our lives are going to demonstrate unity, especially in the church, they're going to need to be marked by humility. They're going to need to be marked with humility. Notice what he says in verse 2. With all Humility, with all humility. The word used for humility here is a compound word that means to think or judge with lowliness and hence to have lowliness of mind. Let me say that again. It means to think or judge with lowliness and hence to have lowliness of mind. Interestingly, humility was a term that was coined by the early Christians. I didn't know that. Neither the Greeks nor the Romans had a word for humility. 
this was a concept that was foreign and abhorrent to their way of thinking. To them, it was only unnatural for a person to not think himself with pride and self-satisfaction. You may find it amusing that when this Greek pastor was reading this information to his wife, she spontaneously burst out in hilarious laughter when I read the part about Greeks not having a word for humility. I still don't think she understood what I was talking about. John MacArthur says, Although humility is at the heart of Christian character, no virtue is more foreign to the world's ways. But humility is the most foundational Christian virtue. Without question, it's foundational. It's foundational to pleasing God. It's foundational to harmony. It's foundational to unity. And it's foundational to every spiritual success. Just as pride is the most deadly and destructive force to a Christian. Which, by the way, is present in every conflict between two people. Isaiah 66.2 says this, But this is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. You want to get God's attention? You want Him to look down on your life? You want Him to come near? This is what God looks to. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, you know the verse, count others more significant than yourselves. When I think about that verse, I think that's not the way I think, to be honest. I struggle to do what that says, counting others more significant than myself or their views. I need the work of the Spirit. I need to remember who I am in Christ. 1 Peter 5.5 says this regarding humility. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't want God to oppose me. I want God to be near. There is something where Paul is calling us to embrace this concept of humility. And it's something that is foreign to the world. It's not something that the world will prize. As my children were beginning to go from the home into the university, I noticed one of the things that they were 
being taught, and that was this. Promote yourself. Think high about yourself. Live in a way that brings an arrogance. If you want promotion, that's what it's going to take. And they found contexts where that arrogance was absolutely cultivated and celebrated. And we had to talk about that. We had to talk about whose glory they were going to live for. Friends, the world will prize arrogance. It will either despise or not understand humility. And it's the very virtue that marked the life of Christ. And it's called to mark ours. And finally, 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it will require humility. So, as I read over these verses, I realize the truth of the matter for this person is that I'm a very arrogant man. I have and continue to need help in cultivating humility. Fortunately, there is help. Fortunately, there's help. My help, first of all, comes from the Lord. One of the ways that he's given me to help is through my dear bride, who, in many times, is a mirror for me in who I really am. And sometimes when I talk to other married brothers who may from time to time realize that their wife is a mirror for them, I say, isn't that just a fulfillment of Genesis 2? Go on, Chris. God said he will give you a helpmate. Yes. Well, how is her bringing up my arrogance help? Well, it helps to show you your need for God. It helps to show you your need to repent. Thanks be to God, wives, when you in living for Christ Help us as your husbands to grow in humility. It's a key. Thank you. So firstly, the Lord helps me through my wife, but mostly he helps me by looking at the cross of Christ. John Stott says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I am bearing. Your curse, I'm suffering. Your debt, I am paying. Your death, I am dying. Nothing in history or even in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until, until we visited a place called Calvary. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Friends, the cross is a means of grace forever. It's a means of grace to help us look at this issue of arrogance and to cultivate humility. 
I love the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, by Isaac Watts, written in 1707. It says this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. We could do a whole series of sermons on the topic of humility. Suffice it to say that, folks, if we are going to maintain unity in the church, center is going to need to be humility. If you struggle with pride, if you need to cultivate humility for the sake of unity, then look no further than the cross of Christ. Look at the cross. Study it. Meditate upon it. Read a good book about it. Read scripture verses about it. The cross of Christ not only frees us from sin, but keeps us. So first of all, we're going to need humility. Secondly, as it says in verse 3, we're going to need to cultivate gentleness or meekness. Excuse me, verse 2. Gentleness, meekness, translated mild-spirited, self-control. It's opposite of vindictive or vengeance-seeking. Interestingly, you cannot be gentle or meek without being humble. Jesus, in Matthew 5.5, said, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus, speaking of himself, said, Matthew 11.29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest to your souls. Paul, in speaking of his actions to the Thessalonians, said, 1 Thessalonians 2.7, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Biblical gentleness is power under control power under control. And the image that I have of that is when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was there with Peter who took up his sword. And Peter said to him, Peter, put down your sword. Do you not think that I can't call legions of angels to help? Brothers, just because we don't retaliate doesn't mean that we are not true to who we are. It means we're putting on gentleness. And if, again, we're going to maintain unity, we must put on gentleness and lay aside vindictiveness and trust fully the Word of God as it directs us to act. Third requirement is patience. Again, patience grows out of humility and gentleness. It means long-tempered, sometimes translated long-suffering. Heard the adage, I want patience and I want it now. Right, And yet the patient person endures negative circumstances, doesn't give in to them. The Apostle Paul was willing to endure incredibly hard circumstances, shipwreck, beating, ridicule, and imprisonment, in order that the gospel would go forward. Colossians 1.11 says that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience Enjoy. First Timothy 1.16 But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Lastly, Paul calls us to bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. Like humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love is necessary for unity. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, listen, covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes we will say that if we are truly going to be righteous, we need to expose sin. Paul calls us to forbear and cover sin. The gospel involves covering sin. Proverbs 10:12 says, "Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses." One author says that forbearing with one another throws a blanket over the sins of others, not to justify or excuse, but to keep the sins from becoming any more known than necessary. Interestingly, in the story of the prodigal son, as the son comes to his senses and returns home, his father runs to him, who was no doubt smelly, who no doubt was having had his fill of sin. And the father does what? Covers him with the finest robe. We are indeed happy when our sins are covered, and well we should be. Key to gospel message, Romans 4, 7 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, the ones that perhaps I committed this very morning, are covered, and whose sins, excuse me, whose deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Friends, we don't hide the fact that we're sinners. We don't put on faces that somehow we are not sinners. We are. But in our love for one another and in our commitment to maintain unity, there's a place where we are called to forbear with the sins and failings of others. So a summary of these four, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love is that 1 Corinthians 13 called to love one another and bear with one another in Christ. We're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit, walk another with one another in love. So first of all, maintaining the unity of the Spirit is what we do and the attitudes that we put on. But it's more than that. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit is going to require us to take a look at what we believe. 
The unity of the Spirit speaks of an allegiance and a dedication to a body of truth that guides our thinking and our decision-making. If you'll look at verses 4 through 6, it says this, There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in all. Apostle Paul is purposely writing these words, and they're like a drumbeat. Can you hear it? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Do you hear perhaps the Old Testament Shema? The Lord our God is one. One body. There's only one body of Christ universal, though many local churches. We say it every time we speak the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic. Wait a second, I'm not a Catholic. Well, the word means unified church. One holy unified church. There's one spirit. It's the same spirit throughout all Christians. The spirit that's in us today is the same. That's in Uganda or Kenya or Nairobi or South America or Asia. The spirit of God is there as well. There's one hope. There's only one hope by which mankind can be saved. One Lord over all. One faith to believe. Contrary to many different things, many different teachings, there are not two roads to heaven. There are not two lords. There are not equal powers. There are not many true gods. There are many gods. There's only one true God. And that's as relevant today as in the day that this were written. The readers of Paul lived in a very pluralistic society where Jesus Christ was not the Lord. Those living in Rome during the days of Caesar had to say Caesar is Lord or at times lose their lives. There are not more than one true Lord. And that true Lord is Jesus. That is being challenged today. That's being challenged in our lives. And Paul is saying there is a clarion drumbeat of unity. Built, cemented, welded around the fact that Jesus is Lord. And He is the means to salvation. And we're called to pledge our lives to that truth. We're called to pledge our allegiance to that truth. And contrary to what some would say, that doctrine unifies. Some would say doctrine separates. I strongly disagree. I believe Paul is saying that that doctrine is required for unity. We need to unify around the truth of who Christ is and what He's done through the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to maintain the unity of Spirit, we must look and consider who we are, what we do, how we live out humility, how we live out gentleness, 
how we live out patience, how we live out forbearing with one another, and what we believe. It's required. Ultimately, this is under the work of the Spirit. And ultimately, this is for His glory. This is not just about us. This is about Him. The unity that we maintain was created by Him. Let me say that again. The unity that we made was created by Him. As much as we'd like to, we cannot create unity in this church. We can't. It's already created. He's done it. We're called to maintain it. We're called to persevere it. We're called to live for it. In closing, the Apostle Paul was writing from prison. In verse 1 of this chapter, he begins by saying, I, therefore, a prisoner. It's interesting to me that he did not say, I, therefore, an apostle. I, therefore, a believer. I, therefore, a disciple. I, therefore, a fellow believer in Christ. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner. I believe in so writing. He demonstrates his commitment to maintain, to promote the unity of the Spirit. To which my question is this. How far are we willing to go to maintain the unity of the Spirit? What cost are we willing to pay to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Probably more important than that is what is God calling us to do to maintain the unity of the Spirit? And never, never, never forget that our own spiritual fulfillment, our own spiritual joy is closely linked to our pursuit to those things that make for unity. That's critical. As we close, I want to ask you to consider your own pursuit of the unity of the Spirit. Would you describe yourself as eager to maintain the unity? Eager to preserve the unity? Do you think on the glorious work of reconciliation when you are in conflict? How often do you reflect on the way the Lord has come to you, covered you, forgiven your sin, and been patient with you? Brothers and sisters, we're called ultimately to put on Christ. And in so doing, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice and give thanks for the unity that You, by Your Spirit, have created. We ask, Father, that You would help us 
to walk in a manner worthy of that unity, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Father, as we leave these doors today, circumstances and situations in our lives, in our families, will tempt us. Humility, patience, forbearance will be in question. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would strengthen us to walk in a manner that honors you. Lord, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of this church, help us. Help us to walk in unity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.